And uh, you are uh, probably wondering if we are in the book of Amos, and by the way, I would encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Amos, whether you have that in electronic form or any other form, turn to the book of Amos. Uh, we'll be wrapping up our this part of the series, but you're wondering, okay, why did Pastor Scott have them read from Luke if we're in Amos? Well, there's a good reason for that. One of the things I think it's important for us to know is there is unity in the Bible. And the two commands that Jesus focuses on Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Come from the Old Testament. Come from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. And the point that Jesus is making and the point that I wanted to make in doing this is those two basic commands really, Jesus said earlier, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. So it's important for us to realize we're working our way through Amos. We're going to go through the rest of the minor prophets. And it's important to realize that these two commands really are key to really understanding how to live according to God's word. You know, have you ever noticed that when a person locks into a misconception or a belief and it's a belief that it is a misconception that it's really hard for them to change. Uh, years ago, when we were living in a mobile home park in uh, Winona Lake, Indiana, I, I, was, I was a seminary student and, and all, and somebody asked if I would go down to one of the other mobile homes and talk to uh, a man. He had just found out he had cancer, and they, you know, you know, if I'm the seminary student, I better practice, right? So, yeah, so I went down, I sat down with this guy, and, you know, we'd known each other. We're, in, in, when you're in a mobile home park, it's like a community of itself. You know the people around you. So we sat down to talk, and somehow the conversation went this way. He eventually, when he learned that I'm a seminary student and all, he said, well, I'm going to tell you, the God of the Old Testament is a God of anger. But the God of the New Testament, he's a God of love. And I said, well, you know, let me show you some scripture that will kind of challenge that a little bit. You know, so I went to Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, where God describes himself. And he said to Moses, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness and showing love to things thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. I talked about verses in the Psalms that talk about his loving kindness. I showed him Jeremiah 31.3 where God said to his people, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And I thought, yeah, I am nailing this. And I got all done. He took a sip of his coffee, put it down. Yeah, but the God of the Old Testament is God of anger. And the God of the New Testament, that's the God of love. <laughs> People get, we get locked into misconceptions. Think about some of the misconceptions that hopefully have been turned around over the years. For instance, the sun and the stars and the planet re, and planets revolve around the earth. You see, Nicholas Copernicus dispelled that in 1534, or 1543. But... 
there was a belief that the earth is flat. And you know what? That wasn't dispelled by Columbus, nor was it dispelled by Magellan. That whole belief was dispelled in about 200 B.C. by a mathematician named Erosthenes of Cyrene. Some people say that on the first day of spring, the spring equinox, if you take an egg out of your refrigerator and you put it on end on your table, it will stand up. Do you know you can do that with any egg on any day if you can just get it balanced properly? I've heard tell, if you're on a highway, and, and I'm, I'm a Kansas boy, so I know a little bit about tornadoes, but I, some people have said, if you're on a highway and there's a tornado coming, pull under an underpass and get up as far as you can. No! Do not do that. Pull over and find a ditch and dive into it. Have you ever heard that a fluorescent lamp uses more electricity when you turn it on than the first 10 minutes of normal operation? Not true. The fact is, yes, there's a little surge of electricity when you turn it on for the first three seconds, but it, it, if you turned it on and it was enough to equal 10 minutes of operation, you would be blowing fuses all over the house. Ah, misconceptions. We simply sometimes accept them and, and sometimes they sound so good, we start to believe them. We're in the book of Amos. Amos was dealing with some people in the northern kingdom and they had begun to believe some misconceptions about God. And those misconceptions had led them to lead a lifestyle that was so out of line with God that they had drifted into deep sin. One of the challenges when we're living and interacting with people in our culture is we also run into misconceptions about God. And some of those misconceptions sound good. We need to remember that we have to run everything through the grid of God's Word. We're going to survey today the last three chapters of the book of Amos, and we're going to look at some misconceptions that are dispelled here. And what you're going to find is that over the last 2,800 years or so, the more things change, the more they remain the same. Here's the first one. We're in Amos 7 to begin with. There are people that still believe, I know, I've run into them, especially when they find out I'm a pastor. They talk about how, well, God's just, you know, it comes up in different ways, but God's out to zap people. You know, God's just there to get you. God wants, God, uh, God's going to make you pay. Uh, God is out to zap you. A lot of people have developed this image about God that somehow he's out to get people. You know, that's kind of that friend I dealt with. He's a God of anger. Well, he's a God who gets angry, but he's not a God of anger. There's this notion that kind of floats around because people will say, I'm a good person. I've seen that. I've heard that when someone has something go wrong in their life. Why is this happening to me? I'm a good person. And if I'm a good person then nothing bad should ever happen in my life. And, and if something bad does happen in my life, well, God must be angry at me. God's out to get me. 
Sometimes there are people that will rarely give lip service to God except to use him as a swear word, but then they face a trial and they're all angry with God for letting it happen. I'm a good person. Why did God let this happen to me? Amos shares a couple of visions in verses 1 through 6 of Amos 7. Let me read those to you. This is what the sovereign Lord showed me. He was preparing swarms of locusts after the king's share had been harvested, and just as the late crops were coming in. When they had stripped the land clean, I cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive! How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen, said the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. The Sovereign Lord was calling for judgment by fire. It dried up the great deep and devoured the land. And then I cried out, Sovereign Lord, I beg you, stop. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen either, the Sovereign Lord said. In these two visions, Amos sees calamity. Uh, The first dream was a swarm of locusts, and notice it was after the king's share had been harvested. Uh, The king's share was the first to come. Now, biblically, it should have been the Lord's share because the first fruits were to go to the Lord. But after the king's share, what that means is this is what's left for the farmers and after the farmers for the poor. And, And what was going to happen in this vision was, sure, the king would get his share, but everything else would be wiped out by the swarms. And Amos just can't handle that. That's going to hurt the, the little people, the regular guys, the people that have to work for a living. The second dream is probably uh, a, a drought uh, pictured as a fire that would just consume and destroy everything. And, and Amos cries out to the Lord after seeing these visions. And do you notice God's response to both of them? It says, the Lord relented. The word relented is is a word that means to have pity on. It's a word that means to show compassion, to show concern, to show grace. And I want you to notice the only reason the Lord relents is because Amos cries out to him. There's nothing that the people have done to cause God to relent. It's because Amos cries out to him. It's God's compassion, God's grace. You see, a God who just wants to zap people does not relent. But a God of grace and a God of mercy and a God of compassion, who's also a God of holiness and justice and righteousness, he relents. Do you know God agonizes over judgment? Because his desire, his deepest desire is to redeem. There's a little verse in the book of Ezekiel that just always grips me. It's Ezekiel 18, 23. And it says, God takes no delight in the death of the wicked, but would rather them repent. God's not out to zap people. God does not take delight when the wicked die because he knows that's the end for them. There's no more chance. He wants people to repent. 
2 Peter 3.9, God does not want anyone to perish, but for all to repent. It causes no, God no end of consternation to exact judgment. I'm looking around, I see a few parents here. As parents, we have had to discipline our children at times. Do you remember maybe having to keep your child from going to an activity that they really wanted to go to, but they had done some things that were outside of the boundaries, and you had to say, no, you can't go. I can remember, I can remember hearing my, one of my daughters weeping. I just, can I go for a little bit? Can I go and then come back? No, you have to stay home. Now, one of our other daughters, the punishment was, you have to go. But, you know, you, you treat the children in, in the manner in which God has created them. But denying our children a privilege, keeping something away from them, it, it does cause agony. I know, I see some young people here, and they're going, yeah, right. Trust me. One day you'll say, oh, Pastor Scott was right. God is not a God who's out to zap people. In fact, God's preference would be to never have to exact judgment. But sin must be dealt with. Here's a second misconception. I just have to make sure that the good outweighs the bad, and then God will accept me. Look at verse 7 of Amos 7. Just a couple verses here. This is what he showed me. So now God has relented twice, but the third time he's not relenting. This is what he showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. Then the Lord said, look, I'm setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be destroyed. The sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. With my sword, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. God shows Amos this third dream. It's a plumb line. Now, a plumb line is used to make sure that a wall is constructed straight. Because if that wall is crooked in one way, shape, or form, it will not perform what it is. You look at the walls around here. They were put together. They're straight. And, and if they weren't, then this roof would be a lot weaker. Uh, and so that's the plumb line. Do you, a plumb line, you can, you can go to Home Depot this afternoon and you can buy the weight that goes on the bottom of a plumb line called a plumb bob. You can buy one today. Uh, a plumb line has that weight and it holds that line straight and, and you would build the wall according to the plumb line. And you wanted to build it so it's vertical. Here's a key point. You do not adjust the plumb line to match the wall. You adjust the wall to match the plumb line. And if you can't maybe uh, structure that wall and get it in plumb, the builder with integrity tears it down and starts over. God uses the plumb line of his holiness the plumb line of his laws to examine the nation. And he says to Amos, in a sense, they're out of plumb. God has sent the prophets along, including Amos. God has 
done everything he could to open their eyes so they will adjust their lives to the plumb line of God's holiness and they have continually rejected God and his ways and as a result either they adjust or he says I have to remove them. God still has a standard. It's revealed in his word. God has provided a way to have a right relationship with him through Jesus Christ. There's no other standard. There's no other way. When they were standing before the Sanhedrin, Peter and John, as they were being brought to trial, they made this statement, there is no other name among people under heaven by which we must be saved. There is only one way. We talked about that last week. Many ways to Jesus, one way to the Father through Jesus. God does not adjust his plumb line to my life. I must adjust my life to him. Now, what we have in this section is this interlude. You have Amos and Amaziah. Amaziah was a priest. See, scholars believe that when Amos first went up to Israel, he went to the capital city of Samaria. But when that northern kingdom of Israel had separated from Judah, Jeroboam had decided he didn't want people going back to Jerusalem worshiping, so he set up a couple of shrines, oddly enough, golden calves, and one of them was at Bethel. Now, we've talked about Bethel before because it was the place where Abraham and where Jacob both met God. It was a very holy place, but by the time Amos comes along, it had become sort of a, a religious tourist attraction. And so they believe that he's kind of moved down to Bethel, and that's why Amaziah confronts him. Amaziah confronts him and basically says, go back to the farm, because that's where Amos was from. He was a farmer. And he said, get out of here, you see her. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there. Amos said, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet. I'm a shepherd. I took care of sycamore, sycamore fig trees. I'm just a farmer. And God said, I want you, farmer, to go up there and preach to them. Seriously? Yeah, seriously. And so he goes and, and, and what he says is this. Amaziah sent word to the king. This is Jeroboam II. Remember, the economy in the northern kingdom of Israel, it is humming along. The military is strong. The borders are secure. The wealthy are getting wealthier on the backs of the poor. But they're, you know, they didn't care about that. And he said, Amos is saying, Jeroboam will die by the sword and Israel will surely go into exile away from the native land. King, he's causing trouble. He's speaking out against you. You need to stop this. And Amos says, Amaziah, you are leading the people wrongly and your family will be in utter disgrace. When you and I are faithful to what God has called us to, there are going to be times where those will, who, there are those who will misconstrue our work, those who will misunderstand our means, those who will misunderstand our motives. Amaziah had bought into the misconception. You know what? We're doing good things here. 
we're, we're, we're doing the sacrifices. Well, to Yahweh, but, you know, we added a few other gods. We have some insurance, but it's okay. We're still good. Uh, we're, 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 from, we're descendants from Abraham. We're good with God. The good stuff we're doing, any of this stuff that you think is bad, it's going to be outweighed by God. Amos doesn't back down. Now, let me do something here. This is, they didn't teach me this in preaching school, but I need to jump forward to chapter 9 for just a minute. I'm not going to read all 14 verses of the first part of chapter 9. Let me summarize. Chapter 9 is the graphic and somewhat gruesome detail that God describes the end result of sin when it comes head to head with his holy power. God does not play games with sin. Verses 1 through 4 is the idea that God, nobody is going to escape. That's highlighted in, at the end of verse 1. Not one will get away. No one will escape. You can't hide from God. Your good deeds done outside of relationship with him are not going to spare you. Verses 5 through 14 reveal his power to do what he wants with the earth. He's the creator. He can do what he wants. He can change the climate. He can do whatever he wants to do. He can have upheaval of the natural resources. A powerful God will do what he needs to do to bring punishment on those who stubbornly refuse to obey him. But his deepest desire is that all humanity repents and changes their mind and actions regarding him. And in that, there is life. Back to chapter 8 now. Chapter 8 gives us what I believe is a third misconception. And it's, the misconception is this. God is largely uninvolved in human affairs. God is there. You know, he doesn't mess with us. Uh, believe it or not, that philosophy, theology, kind of cropped up in the late 17th and 18th centuries. In fact, that was a philosophy that influenced many of our founding fathers. It's called deism. Deism says God created this world. He set all the natural processes in place and into motion. And then he kind of stepped back and he's letting it happen. And basically, by our own human intelligence and reasoning, we're able to guide our own affairs. In 2001, a sociologist by the name of Christian Smith gathered a team of sociologists and they launched a massive study of young people in America. That study lasted for 14 years, up until 2015, and they were following these up. It, it was called the National Study of, of Religion and Youth. And uh, there were several books that were published based on their findings. The first one came out in 2005, and it was entitled Soul Searching, Religious, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. And out of their research, they coined a term. They called it moralistic, therapeutic deism. And they said, you know, as we've, we've teenagers all across the country, from all kinds of backgrounds, we've discovered there are five core beliefs that fit this misconception. One is 
They believe a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. God wants people to be, secondly, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Five, good people go to heaven when they die. So many today who call themselves Christians kind of fit into that. Ah, we're pretty sure God's there. We're pretty sure he made the earth in some way. We weren't there, but we'll, we'll take his word for it. Uh, but you know what? I'm going to manage my own life. I got this. I'm going to manage my own life. I'm going to make my own decisions. And if I get in a jam, well, then I'll call out to God. But otherwise, God, I've got this. Just, I got it. Amos reminded the nation they were living that way. Look at what he says here. Eight, chapter 8, verse 1. This is what the sovereign Lord showed me. A basket of ripe fruit. What do you see, Amos? He asked. A basket of ripe fruit, I answered. Then the Lord said to me, the time is ripe for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, the songs in the temple will turn, will turn to wailing. Many, many bodies flung everywhere. Silence. Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over that we can sell grain? And the Sabbath be ended that we can market wheat? Skimping on the measure, boosting the price, cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. The Lord has sworn by himself the pride of Jacob. I will never forget anything they have done. Amos said, the time is ripe. God said, the time is ripe. You see, God repeatedly warned them. We've seen it throughout this book, how they treated the poor. Warned them. God repeatedly warned them that you need to be giving your whole heart to me. Actions, religious rites and rituals that don't touch the heart are just religious rites and rituals. God had warned them. They, would, they wouldn't listen. They would go to celebrations, new moon festivals, and all they could think about was, man, when is this over? Because I got business to take care of. I got things to do. They, they would think about, you know, when is this over? I need, to, I need to market the wheat. And yet, the way they marketed the wheat was they, were, they would skimp on the measure. They would, they would find ways to, to measure out the wheat and get more for the measure than it was really worth. And they would, they would build their wealth. We've said it time and again. They've built their wealth on the backs of the poor. You know, they, they, would, they would literally buy and sell the poor. They were, they were, in essence, committing some kind of a slave trade. And God says, I see all of this. It drives me nuts. And I am not going to forget anything you've done. What do we think about when we're sitting here on Sunday? And I got to confess something. I get distracted. Some of you may not know, but I like to play a little game that my mentor called cow pasture pool. Golf. 
And I know that at this moment, there is a major tournament going on at a place that's on a bucket list, Scotland, at St. Andrews, the old course, the 150th British Open. And I know I got to keep my phone notifications off and keep it in my pocket so that I'm not distracted because I need to be here. But I can tell you there are times when I've been very distracted. What distracts us? What occupies our mind? You know, we just sang, come and see the glory of the Lord. Come behold the Lamb. Oh, what a great song. Boy, I wonder how Roy McElroy's doing right now. I wonder if he's holding his lead. No, I, we have to train ourselves to stay focused. These people were saying, oh, yeah, it's a new moon festival, blah, blah, blah. I, wheat prices are going up. I need to sell. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not forget we do. We have a tendency to take our sin and kind of shove it under the carpet, don't we? We have a tendency to, to engage in personal cover-up. We, we want to look good. We want to massage and manage our image. And God is aware and God says, I will call you to account. He called the nation of Israel to count and he will warn us only so many times. There comes a point where God says, that's it. You've had your final warning. See, God is very much, very much involved in what we do. Very much aware of our lives. Very much aware of our mindset and our attitudes. At the end of chapter 8, we have another misconception that's dispelled. The misconception is this. No matter how I live, when I really need him, God will come through. So sometimes that gets kind of put on me. No matter how I live, Pastor Scott, you've got an in with the dude upstairs, so I'll reach out to you and you, you pray for me. I do pray for people. But if you know Christ, you have every bit as avenue to the throne of grace as I do. God says to his people, a day is coming when my word will not be found. Look at verse 11. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land. Not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. God says there's going to come a day when I'm silent. Now, there are certain times I've discovered in my life when God is silent. Sometimes God may be silent as a test for those who are faithful to strengthen their resolve to trust him no matter what the circumstances. I read that from uh, Oswald Chambers in My Utmost for His Highest. He said, you know, if God is silent, maybe he's trusting you with his silence. I don't think that's the case here. I don't think that's what God's talking about here. Sometimes God is silent because there's no one who's willing to really preach or proclaim his word. No one who will point the truth of his word and, and use it to tell people what his word says. Uh, there are too many people 
who consider themselves colleagues of mine who misuse this word, who use it for personal gain, who use it to try to pad their own pockets, who use it to try to get people to follow them, not necessarily the God who they're supposed to be representing. I've had people ask me year in and year out if I get nervous when I speak. The answer to that question is at the same time no and yes. You see, I've done this for so long that uh, the act of actually standing up and talking in front of a bunch of people really doesn't bother me at all. My first speech I gave, eighth grade, Mr. Anderson's English class, Salina South Junior High School, I had note cards. I couldn't read them because my hand was shaking like this. It was like, you know, so I, I, so I get the nerves of that, but over the years, God's gotten me over that. But there's something else. The realization that I stand before you week in and week out. And that now my words are going out all over the internet so that anybody at any time and any place on the planet can hear my words. That makes me take pause. Not because somebody might misconstrue what I say, but because I am responsible to take this word and to dispel it and to preach it accurately. I have to bring to you the very words of God, and knowing that responsibility does cause me to tremble. And I hope I never get over that. I hope I never get to the point where I don't find a bit of anxiousness preaching God's word. There's a third reason God may be silent. God may be silent because those who claim to pursue him have had multiple opportunities to be obedient to his word and have chosen to live their own way. God is not obligated to come through for us when we stubbornly persist in our own way and our own disobedience. And that was what was going on in Amos. God tells his nation, his chosen one, that he loves them. And then he says, one day you are going to seek me and I will not be there because you've rejected me. Every time I've reached out to you, you've rejected me. So he tells them, when you find yourselves in those circumstances and you only want God to rescue you but not change your life, you want God to bless you but not correct you, you want God to ease your pain but not increase your commitment, you will find him strangely silent. God's desire is that in all of this, his people, his nation would see their sin, would make an about face, would come back into line with God's standards so that he could relent and show compassion and not deal with them severely. History bears it out. They didn't do it. They didn't change. Amos went back to the farm, went back to the sheep, to the sycamore trees, and nobody listened. Sometimes 
we study these prophets, we look at them and go, okay, this has been really cool, you know, 2,800 years ago, and they were not so great. But what does it have to do with me? Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12 are an interesting couple of verses. Amos says, in that day I will restore, Amos speaking the words of God, David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and that all the nations may bear, that bear my name declares the Lord who will do these things. Someday, God says, I'm not going to repair my nation. I'm going to open the door so that all the nations may bear my name. In your New Testament, in the book of Acts, in chapter 15, there was a gathering of a bunch of people. We call it the First Church Council. And there was a, the, the, the big issue, the big question was, these people who are not Jewish, they're Gentiles, and they're all over the Mediterranean, and all of a sudden, they are believing in Jesus. Uh, what do we do with them? How do we bring them into the family of Christ? They haven't followed the Jewish law. Some of the Jewish people thought they ought to follow the law, especially the law of circumcision, if they can be part of God's family. And so they go back and forth, and Paul talks, and different ones, and finally at the conclusion, James speaks. And, and as he draws the conclusion, draws it all to a close, he quotes, it's, it would be from a, a, a book called the Septuagint, a Greek translation of the Old Testament, but he refers to Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. And his interpretation is that God is calling out from the non-Jews people that he wants to call by his name. In other words, God was opening a door through Christ for all to come to him. And that includes you and me. As a result, the council decided we're not going to make it difficult for non-Jewish people to come to God. So we're not going to make them go through the ritual of circumcision and all. That's not necessary for a true heart change. It's their faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's the really looking back on it, kind of the bottom line in Amos. It's this. There's only one hope in this world. And that is for God's people to put aside all other gods, all other allegiances, and to cling to the one true God, the great I Am. The God who delivered Israel from Egypt. The God who, for you and me, has reminded us that our hope is not in a specific church. Our hope is not in following some dynamic personality. Our hope is not in a political party. Our hope is not in any set of human rules or misconceptions. Our hope is only in the person of Jesus Christ and through him to have relationship with the Father and by him to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit who teaches and guides and directs and convicts and corrects. It's in that 
faith relationship and only in that faith relationship that you and I find the true soul satisfaction that we need. Misconceptions abound and they will continue to abound. But remember, don't expect God to adjust his plumb line to you. Adjust your life to his plumb line. And his plumb line is found in his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for reminders this morning. Um, Thank you that you're a God of compassion. A God who would prefer to see us, all of us, repent and come to faith in you. And when we err, repent and correct our sins, correct the direction that we're going. Because, Lord, your heart is not to judge. Your heart is to redeem. May we sense and live our lives according to your plumb line. In Jesus' name, amen.